Hey, this is The Mouth Off with Kyone Wolf, storytelling from the Mark Twain house. I'm Kyone Wolf. I'm going to keep this intro short because I want you to hear Carrie Nowak's voice as soon as possible. I'll tell you a little bit more about him later, but this is his story from April of 2016, and the theme was April Fool's, stories about getting duped. I was persuaded to take a ride into town with my friends. I was a new kid in town, only lived there barely a year, so really didn't know these people very well. And at 18, it's very easy to believe that you know everything. But I was uh, naive, and I kind of went with the flow, and there would be a lesson I would learn this evening. Now, at this moment, I was stranded and left in that town late at night. They purposely left me there. Now I had a 12-mile walk to make my way home, and at 11.30, there was just no traffic, so it was going to be a long walk. In any event, five miles into that walk, I was attacked by a pack of dogs. And I still say it was one of the most thrilling nights of my life. (laughs) Now the dogs are gone. Numerous bites in my legs and some blood-stained holes in my dungarees. and Seemed to me a reasonable price for something I would be able to remember for all my life. But I realized just a couple of miles ahead, there's a Holiday Inn. So I realized at this point uh, that it would be nice to go inside their lobby and warm up just a little bit. I get to the Holiday Inn, I walk inside, and I see a young and cheerful staff sitting, uh, I mean, working inside there. And I ask him if I would be able to come in and just warm up a bit. I told him about my acquaintance with the dogs and how I still had a few more miles still to walk. Well, they took pity on me or something, but either way, They offered me the couch. They said, there's the couch. Why don't you go ahead and sit over there? A few minutes later, they brought me a mug of hot chocolate. Now, these were people I didn't even know. My friends were the people who were screwing me. So it was was particularly nice to be doing this. And at the same time, just minutes later, a girl I adored from afar for the whole year that I was there came over to me, and she brought me a blanket. She said that I'd be able to spend the night on the couch if I chose to. And that at 6 o'clock in the morning, one of the co-workers was going to be going home. And I could catch a ride with him. It was on on his way. 6 o'clock the next morning, I was wakened. I got inside the guy's car. He dropped me off at uh, my apartment. I got out of the car. I gave him a hearty thank you, closed the door. And as he whisked away, I looked into the parking lot of my own car. It had flat tires. I went over to the car, took a look, and it was slash marks in the sidewall of the car. And I took a look at the security door that's supposed to keep the apartment building secure, and it wasn't uh, secure. The door was open. So I ran over to the door, took a look, and it was kicked in. I then ran up the stairs to my own apartment, and I saw the door to my apartment was kicked in also. At that moment, my heart sank lower than I'd ever thought it could sink before. I ran into the apartment. I saw things were turned upside down here and there, and Then I ran up the stairs to where my loft was, where my bed was. I thrust my arm underneath that bed, searching for a satchel that I'd hid underneath the bed. The satchel was missing. Inside the satchel, I was a kid that moved around a great deal. And with nine other brothers and a mother and father and so forth, many, many times was so much to move, we were often told, bring what you need and leave behind what you uh, what we can't take. And even teddy bears, when you're six and seven years old, you leave them behind because there's just no room for them. So it was unusual to be able to carry very much with you. 
But this satchel was one of those things that, uh, that I did. Inside that satchel was a handmade wallet made by Micmac Indians up in Caribou, Maine. 1961, I had my first job. I, get, I can actually tell people that I got my first pay envelope before I ever got my first report card. And with that pay envelope, I went out and bought a 50-cent wallet made by Micmac Indians, and that was inside that satchel. Those things would connect me to every place and everything that uh, I'd ever experienced. But also inside that case was many, many coins, silver dollars and coins going back into the 18th century. But those coins weren't just given to me. They, I had earned them. Silver dollars were still in circulation. When I was a kid, you could go to the bank with a $10 bill and buy 10 silver dollars if you wanted, and they could be ranging any, anywhere from 1880 to 1930s, peace dollars. But every one of those coins didn't really have a value to me. It was sentimental. Because as a newspaper boy delivering newspapers in my town, I ran into some of the sweetest and nicest people I ever knew in all my life. Joe McGarrett and his wife Doris owned Belltown Package Store in East Hampton, Connecticut. And Joe was a tall and strapping big fella, would wear a white apron. And every Friday I'd go in to deliver the uh, last of the week's papers and collect my money for the uh, papers, and he'd have an ice-cold bottle of uh, Coca-Cola sitting right there on the counter for me. And he'd tip me a silver dollar each and every week. But those silver dollars, I could hold them, and I could feel the people who had touched them before. And that would include the people who gave it to me and those who had ever touched the coin in all its life. Right next to uh, Belltown Package Store, there was a place called the Purple Cow. And it used to be a place where all the derelicts would hang around town. But I found that they weren't really derelicts. They were some of the sweetest people I knew, too. I'd go inside that bar, and I got to know Stewie and Betty Bear and some of the others that were regulars there. And sometimes they'd tell me to belly up to the bar and have a, have a soda with them. And it was really nice. There was an old woman, Mrs. Biondi, I used to deliver to. She was the last person on the route, and during the winter that would mean nighttime walking. But I would walk up to her back door, and she'd be, she would come out and talk with me. She was ever so lonely, spent so many hours by herself. And she would tell me about the things she would see in the night sky. And that was another person that uh, these coins reminded me of. In 1968, my little brother Tammy and I, yeah, with ten boys in my family, I've got a brother named Tammy. <laughs> but there was a railroad trestle behind Sid Gordon's Market. And that trestle was built up on granite blocks, kind of like a pyramid style with a crook between each block. And one day on our way home, we were uh, taking a shortcut down across the trestle through the uh, woods into our house. But there inside the crook of uh, two sets of blocks was a pile of silver just sitting there waiting for us. Old, old coins from 1880s to 1940s, all pure silver, just piles of it. And it reminded me of Boo Radley, the very same thing that Harper Lee wrote about. 1970, we moved to Virginia, and when we did, there was 13 of us. And you didn't have anything like the Internet to help you find a home. So my father found a place that was only four rooms, no running water, and in an outhouse. But next to that outhouse, and it was only temporary, we were only there for three months while they looked for a better place. But next to the outhouse, there was a, uh, a little shed little run-down, beat-up old shed with a wooden uh, benchtop inside. And on top of that benchtop, there was a paper bag, just a little lunch bag-style thing. And it was enshrouded in spider webs. It took decades to create this many spider webs. 
I moved them aside with my hand and, and I opened up that bag and inside was a 1738 private issue and a diamond ring. These things were inside that satchel. So these friends of mine took just about every memory I had ever been able to keep with me all my life. Now a lot of people would ask me, why was being attacked by the dog such a wonderful thing compared to what happened on that next day? I'll take the dogs any day of the week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carrie Nowak, whose bio reads like this. With his love for the sound of the road passing beneath him and the adventures it would entail, Carrie Nowak would continue the saga he'd known all his life. With nothing more than a map on the floor and a steady gaze, he'd someday find the home that somewhere awaits him. I think he's still looking for that home, but I'm so glad he passed through Mark Twain's home on his way. Next up, Joan Walden. Here's her bio. My love of stories, listening, and telling them comes from my dad. He had the soul of a performer, but the Great Depression had other plans for him, and to support his family, he became a dental technician. I remember that whenever he'd run into his friends, they would say, Tell us a story, Charlie. Many would. As a faculty member at Central Connecticut State University's Communication Department, I have the opportunity to tell stories to my students that inform, instruct, and when the stars are in alignment, entertain. At those times, I feel as though I'm channeling my dad. Here's Joan from our June 2013 show. The theme was Father's Day. My father was a natural-born storyteller. He came to this honorably because his grandparents on his father's side were both actors on the Yiddish stage. Uh, they had four children. Each was born in a different country. And then uh, they eventually came to the United States at the early part of the 20th century. And I remember my father telling me a story about his grandfather, who was an uh, impatient man, a very dramatic man, needless to say. And uh, one day he was running to catch a ferry. And he got to the dock just as the boat was pulling out. And so he leapt onto the boat but the boat wasn't pulling out, it was coming in. And his leg got caught between the boat and the dock. And he was rushed to a hospital. And when the doctor examined him, he said, gangrene is apparently setting in, we're gonna to have to amputate your leg. The man was an actor, he was a performer, and the shock of it killed him. He had a heart attack and he died right there. And when I think about my father, heart, and heart disease sums him up, in a word. Uh, his sisters, he had two sisters. He was one of three children, actually. And both of his sisters died of heart disease. Uh, my mother had rheumatic fever when she was a child, as did I. But the difference was that when I was a child, penicillin was in use, so that I was okay. But when my mother was a child, there was no cure, there was no treatment, and so her heart was really enlarged. Uh, I remember my father telling me that it, was, it filled her, her entire chest cavity. So she was not all that well, and being pregnant with me put a great strain on her heart, so I'm an only child. But I had a fabulous father who was such a nurturing, wonderful man that I never felt a loss of siblings, and although my mother was ill, uh, my father filled in all those gaps. October 1956, my parents celebrated their 20th wedding anniversary. In November of that same year, my mother died in her sleep. And I have this vivid 
picture of my father coming into the hallway to tell me that my mother was dead. And we stood there holding each other and crying. It was an enormous shock. And it was also an enormous relief, which was something we could never share with anyone else because they would think we were horrible people. But my mother was really hard to live with. She partly, and I realize now as an adult, partly because she was not well. But she was demanding, and she was impatient, and she was moody. And there'd be, sometimes a week would go by when she wouldn't talk to my father. They'd have some, I can't remember what, but something would happen, and she would stop talking to him. So when she died, we could relax. And although he didn't ever make a lot of money, he was a dental technician, he had wanted to be a performer. And he had, he had a great gift for performance. Whenever we'd walk into, he had a lot of friends who owned stores, and we'd walk into somebody's store, or we'd go to somebody's house, and they'd always say, tell us a story, Charlie. Tell us a joke. And he always had one. And everybody would laugh, and I, he, was just, he, was, he was just so personable. But once my mother died, we, he could just be himself. And although, uh, and, and his, he, he had started a lab, he, he had a, a dental lab, not far from where we lived. So um, whatever money he made, we spent. We went to New York, we saw Broadway shows, we went to dinner, we went to, we went to movies. We had a good life. In my teen years, uh, after some time had passed, after my mother died, his friends would urge him to start dating. And he would always say, no, because of me. But he would always tell me that he just didn't want to. He was not interested. It was probably a combination of the two. And also, he wasn't terribly well himself. He, every single day, I believe, for the rest of his life, he was popping nitroglycerin pills. Sometimes, many times in a day. But he never let me feel that there was a problem. Some nights he couldn't sleep lying down because of the pain in his chest, so he would sit up in a chair. But he never complained, and he never behaved as though he was sick, which is extraordinary when I think about it. I went off to college, and he did start to date again. The year after I got married, he got married. He remarried, and they moved a few towns away. And she looked a lot like my mother. It was so interesting. I hadn't, it hadn't, I hadn't put it together, but my husband said to me one day, you know, she looks a lot like your mother. And I went, you know, she does. And she was in many ways a lot like my mother. But they were very happy, and um, not much more than a year after they got married, she was diagnosed with cancer. The following year, three weeks after my son was born, she died. And it pitched him into a terrible depression. I had never seen him depressed before, not like this. He, was, he, he started to drink something he had never done. Uh, he, was, he was just morose, and I was frightened. But he moved back to Freeport into another apartment, and I was living in Connecticut. And he, after a time, started to date a woman who lived down the hall. Her name was Dorothy, and she was unlike either of his two wives. She, she had um, bleach blonde hair, and she painted her fingernails. She had a little white poodle. She had white furniture. She was totally different. She was also about 16, 17 years younger than he. So he was a little concerned about that age difference. He was, at this point, late 50s, early, maybe 60. And uh, so she was in her 40s. And one night, I was talking to him on the phone. We talked quite often, and he said, uh, I'm thinking of asking Dorothy to marry me. And I said, well, okay, if that's what you want. Sounds good to me. Not long after that, my marriage started to, 
dissolve. And I was getting ready to move into an apartment in Hartford. And uh, my father and I were on the phone, I remember one night, and he said to me, listen, I'm coming, I'm coming up next weekend. I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to buy you pots and pans. I've always wanted to buy you pots and pans. I said, okay, fine, who knew? It's good. I'm good with that. I could use pots and pans. And I remember getting off the phone and feeling so lucky that I had someone who, who really was, was always there for me. Three days later, I got a call from my uncle late at night that my father had died. He had gone to Dorothy's for dinner, and after dinner he said, um, I'm not feeling very well, and he lay down, and he died. And I remember when I, when I heard this, all I could think of was, my ace in the hole has died. Um, it, was, it was a tremendous shock, needless to say. And I had a little boy, he was four years old, and I was getting divorced. It was not the best of times. But you do what you got to do, and I had to keep going. And I knew, I knew he was behind me and on my shoulder and there, even though he was no longer there. And Dorothy and I made a pledge to each other. She, she had never married. She had no children. And um, I had no siblings, and I had no parents. And so we said we would stay together. We would create a bond, which we did. And so we talked on the phone quite often. We'd see each other every now and then. And we were family. A couple of years go by. And I have a dream in which my father comes to me. I hadn't dreamt of him at all since he died. And in the dream, he says to me, I want you to go see Dorothy. And I said, oh, Dad, I just, I, you know, I'm busy. It's, it's a, lo it's a dry, you know, Long Island, that drive. And I'm, you know, I can't, and I know. And he, but he was very, very persistent. And we seldom argued when he was alive. I mean, we always got along really well. But he wouldn't let go. So I said, why? And he said, because I think she's getting married. And I woke up. I, honest to goodness, never remember my dreams. And I certainly never remember them as a whole. But this one was very powerful. It was as though he was there. So I waited till the afternoon, and I, I called up Dorothy. We had a long conversation. We talked about every which thing. And I was about to hang up. She was about to hang up. And I said, oh, oh, by the way, I had a dream. And I told her the dream. And there was silence. And she said, oh, my God, that's really something I, I am thinking of getting married. Do, 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 do. <laughs> she did get married, actually. It was something that I've, I've always held with me, that, that feeling that he had come to me this one last time. I've not dreamt about him since. He'll, he'll have been dead 40 years next month, which is a long time. And in those 40 years, and even before that, as, as you can imagine, I have attended a lot of memorial services, and I've heard a lot of prayers. And there's one I'd, I'd like to leave you with, and it's, it's from uh, the Jewish Book of Prayer, and it's just the last line. And I think it sums it up perfectly well for me and my father. So long as we live, they too shall live, for they are now a part of us as we remember them. Thank you. Thank you, Joan Walden. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. Tell your story at one of our live shows, Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. 
At that site, you'll also see all the other cool stuff Twain has going on, in addition to funny and really fascinating house tours. Twain's tradition of storytelling continues, with writing classes and workshops, chances to write in Mark Twain's library, and the popular Mark My Words series, where authors from around the world come to talk about how current issues are colliding with their work. Follow The Twain House on Facebook and sign up for the newsletter at marktwainhouse.org. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jennifer LaRue. Learn about my other shows at kionewolf.com, on Twitter and Instagram at kionewolf, on Facebook at kionewolf Productions, and you can be a part of fueling all of this at patreon.com slash kionewolf. Imagine the story you'll tell about being a sponsor for the Mouth Off podcast. For rates, email mouthoffhartford at gmail.com. All right, till next time, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye.